This is the University of Georgia Griffin News, brought to you over WKU AM 1450, 102.3 FM, The Rock 88.9 FM, and stream live on WKURadio.com. This program is to update our listeners on the many and exciting things at the University of Georgia Griffin with Dr. Lou Honeycutt and his guests. The program is made possible by Frank and Carolyn Harris of Round Oak Resources Tree Farms and Murray and Company Realtors. And now today's program with Dr. Lou Honeycutt. Good morning, Griffin Spalding in the surrounding area. Welcome back to another edition of the Griffin Campus News. I am Lou Honeycutt, and I'm proud to be here with you. We've got another great show today. We're going to center around keeping food safe for the holidays. We're going to talk about a lot of things, but I think it's a pretty timely event to talk about that since we are coming into that time where we all eat way too much and, and too often, I think. But I've got two people with me today from the Center for Food Safety, and that is Dr. Larry Bouchard, who is a Distinguished Research Professor Emeritus, and David Mann, who's been on before. We've talked about we've talked about a lot of things, David. When you've been on, but he's a research professional in the Center for Food Safety. And so, Larry, we're going to start with you. The first thing we always do when we get anybody on the show is you tell us your life story from birth till now. How did you get here to this seat? (laughs) Thank you, Lou. Uh, I grew up on a dairy farm in Pennsylvania, and so I've always been close to agriculture and have pursued uh, my career in agriculture. First in horticulture and then in food science and technology and in public health aspects of food science. Um, Upon graduating, uh, getting my Ph.D. degree, I had a job, a position with the Quaker Oats Company. Oh, wow. uh, Research and Development Center uh, near Chicago, where I was uh, in charge of developing better processes to ferment uh, crackers or to produce crackers with better flavor using fermentation technologies. Um, but that portion of the country or uh, company was sold uh, about two years after I had joined. So my uh, uh, position then changed to uh, developing uh, snacks that would have higher protein content and nutritional value, okay. but not necessarily in the food microbiology arena. Uh, I looked for a position in academia, found uh, that the University of Georgia had a position open here in Griffin, and moved here in 1972. Oh, that's awesome. Thinking (laughs) that I may stay for five or eight years, but I was on faculty uh, that in the end totaled about 44 years as a researcher in the area of food microbiology, much of it in the safety area, but also spoilage of foods by microorganisms and the beneficial aspects of microorganisms that we depend on to make our foods, or some of them, taste good and very appetizing and nutritional. That's awesome. And so so 44 years, but then you're still very active. And so you're still, what I, you're still part of the Center for Food Safety. Yeah, unfortunately, uh, retiring isn't uh, as easy as I thought it might be. <laughs> I um, I have been afforded uh, a small office and access to uh, some of the facilities there at the center. I still do enjoy very much mentoring or assisting in mentoring graduate students um, to take calls and reach out to the food industry, to the consumer, 
when we get calls dealing with food safety, helping them make decisions as to what uh, might be done to reduce the risk of, in the case of industry, products uh, causing foodborne illness or might cause, and in the case of consumers uh, also, to help them uh, uh, make their the foods that they serve to their families. Usually the homemaker gives me a ring uh, to make them safer. Sure. No, that's incredible. And then just as a ballpark, and you may know off the top of your head, how many publications in 44-plus years have you been a part of and, and completed? Well, I really haven't counted all of them. But, <laughs> There's a uh, bunch. <laughs> in in uh, the university, academia in general, um, uh, the slogan is publish or perish. Exactly. And uh, we, uh, we do try to report all the information that's worth reporting through scientific journals and at conferences and through brochures and reports that uh, reach the the public in general. I published um, 500 and about 530 scientific referee journal articles, but a number of others uh, co-authored five books and also uh, uh, a number of abstracts. I suppose it approaches 1,500 publications. Shush. I knew it was going to be high, but that even staggers me. And what people need to understand is you don't just get to submit and publish. You get, it's, it's peer refereed. I mean, they are, these are hard oh. to get into. I've often said uh, to those uh, students who have studied under my guidance and mentorship that research is never complete until the information that is generated in the lab reaches those who can benefit by it. In our case, um, it's both the food industry, uh, even post-harvest, as well as is a rather pre-harvest as well as post-harvest, and certainly uh, the consumer who is rightfully concerned about the level of safety of foods they may purchase at retail or be served in restaurants. So it goes to the full range of clientele, food industry, uh, the consuming public, and in between and perhaps at times overshadowing uh, regulatory agencies and agencies that uh, give guidance to the consumer as well as uh, the uh, industry in terms of public health safety of their products. Oh, it's inc- that's incredible. What an incredible story. So i got one more question, then I'm going to go to David's life story, which he's told before. But what made you shift from horticulture to, to food microbiology or food science? At uh, In my undergraduate uh, program at Penn State in the early 1960s, okay. there was not a program in food science and technology. However, there were there were courses offered in food processing, food microbiology, food chemistry, which I very much enjoyed. And so when I uh, became interested in pursuing a graduate degree, I uh, inquired with the universities that did have these programs, and it turned out that um, I was admitted to and spent five years at the uh, Michigan State University in food science with a minor in public health. That's incredible. And I'm telling you, I speak for, for many people internationally and nationally. We're all glad you switched over. Because <laughs> there's a lot of people yeah. that, you, that, that Well, I've always had think. an interest in, in, even as a child, in food and food uh, delivery. 
uh, growing on a, up on a dairy farm, of course, my father was in charge of of the uh, the, the dairy part of it. But my mother would uh, grow a large garden, and she would go to the local market two days a week, uh, Tuesday and Saturday, as I remember. Okay. And uh, I was charged with helping her, <laughs> and uh, so I really became interested in uh, in food uh, handling, food uh, preservation, uh, both microbiological and sensory uh, sensorial qualities from a very young age, and that then uh, extended into my uh, undergraduate degree in horticulture. Uh, and also eventually in food science and technology. Sure. No, that's awesome. Yeah. And the um, I, I didn't know your dairy background, but but I know your work ethic is unme- un, un, unmeasured or un, unequaled. And now I know why, because dairy people know how to work. <laughs> well, thank you. Thank, <laughs> oh, my, thank my parents. Thank your parents, exactly. I mean, parents instill that work ethic, and especially in dairy people. You don't get days off, and you don't get time off. Mm. You just work. So no, it doesn't surprise me that you're still working. But okay, let's go to David real quick. All right. You guys, you got a big shoes. To I know. Fill how do I follow that? But tell us Let's, your life story as well. So mine's quite different. <laughs> uh, I am actually local. I'm. I grew up in Griffin. I graduated from Griffin High. Then I started um, taking classes at Clayton State College. Uh, wasn't really sure what I was going to do. I I went from psychology, accounting. I was going all <laughs> over the place. Uh, but I needed a part-time job, and I knew I had a high school friend who worked at the what we called then experiment station, sure, sure. <laughs> and I came on part-time, um, basically washing dishes. You know, we had a project back then where we produced cheese, and okay. we had to spin this cheese down in tubes. So, as you can imagine, the the cheese is just lodged Ooh. in these tubes, <laughs> and we had like five-gallon buckets of these tubes that we would soak in hot water, and we're just back in the lab digging the cheese out, cleaning these tubes out. So do you Uh, have on your resume cheese tube cleaner? I mean, is that... I I do have a section that that has... I love it. ...products and types of foods I work (laughs) with. Cheese is definitely up there because that was was a very big project we had. Um, So I was part-time and, you know, just doing trash and... Washing dishes, autoclaving dishes. Um, but the more I got involved in the projects, um, as he mentioned, I, you know, as, as it points out that all it takes is one good teacher or one good experience in science and you can get hooked. Absolutely. And that's what happened. So I changed my focus to biology. Um, I eventually got the opportunity to come on as a full time technician under. Uh, Dr. Doyle, who was the previous center director, and I was there for several years, and then I got the opportunity to move to Dr. Shaw's lab and take on even more responsibilities. And as he mentioned, I mean, we worked together for over 10 years. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, under his guidance, I even, I think, had around 15 publications that we Fantastic. On, mm-hmm. so. And so when, so you started at UGA when as uh, an employee? So that was 2001. Wow. Okay. So next, this coming February will be 18 years. That's incredible. And for those who know David or if you've ever seen him, he looks like he's 12. <laughs> so I really don't see how that could be possible <laughs> at 18 years, but that's incredible. Yeah. 
So and then um, so we're gonna so that's fantastic and a great story and I'm glad you you have the experience you have with Larry. But let's talk. We're gonna talk a little bit about the center. We are gonna get to food. I promise to the to keeping food safe. Well, let's talk a little bit about the center for food safety because I think for a lot of people it's a very mysterious part of of the campus or the station out there because it, it's such critical work being done. But it's not really mysterious to y'all, I know, or to me. But so let's talk about how long it's been here, kind of when it was formed, why it was formed, and really what's the purpose of the Center for Food Safety at the University of Georgia Griffin? Well, the center was established in the early 1990s, and it uh, it was established soon after Dr. Mike Doyle joined the University of Georgia. Uh, He had been uh, part of a Center for Food Safety at the University of Wisconsin. Uh, he and many of the faculty at that time felt that uh, there was a need, and there still is a need, to work more closely with the people that we want to serve. That is, in our case, the food industry and the consumer. There are often uh, problems that come up in the food industry, processed foods or uh, semi-processed foods, that that require solutions immediately, or there may be problems anticipated that maybe uh, we at the center could help them avoid. The same is true for uh, the consumer. So we established the center under uh, Mike's direction, and um, our mission has been, uh, just as I mentioned, to serve those in the private industry, as well as public uh, industries, uh, with regard to uh, solving problems associated with microbiological food safety. We don't work in chemical food safety. Um, The pesticides or residues from uh, various uh, other chemicals, we just don't have the faculty, the staff, and the wherewithal to do that. So we focus on microbiology. And we have... A uh, an annual meeting that is uh, involves uh, speakers from the U.S. Department of Agriculture, the Food and Drug Administration, Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, and also from food industry and academics around the world. It is a meeting that we feel is necessary to communicate immediately, sometimes uh, in a proprietary sort of way, to those that we really serve. Our funds are largely from um, federal sources and the food industry, the USDA, the Food and Drug Administration, uh, at times from CDC through special programs. Um, so we uh, we have to answer <laughs> to <laughs> those that are supporting us. Uh, we we really do depend on on uh, support from sources outside the University of Georgia to to keep our program at the level we think it should be and to uh, try to um, expand where we think is necessary. So over the now almost 20 years, we've uh, uh, grown to be respected, I think, uh, internationally and certainly uh, in, in the U.S. and in Georgia. We have a good relationship with the uh, Georgia Department of Agriculture, for example. So we keep on keeping on. Um, faculty always um, searching for opportunities to fund the center, 
to develop new methods to detect uh, in a shorter time uh, microorganisms that uh, we know can cause foodborne illness. And I'm not just talking bacteria. We commonly, I think most people are aware of um, salmonella and sure. staphylococcus and listeria, especially these days. We also uh, have faculty that are dedicated to studying uh, uh, parasites in foods, which seems to be coming on as a group of foodborne pathogens of greater significance, uh, not only on foods that we import, but certainly foods here in the U.S. that are produced domestically. We also uh, have a an excellent program in food virology. Um, it surprises some, uh, even in the food safety arena at times, that the uh, the largest number of cases of foodborne illness are caused by viruses, norovirus in particular, but also hepatitis A. And so we have a program, uh, one of really a very few in the country, that uh, have a an active, dedicated research effort to, uh, at this point in time, develop methods to be able to actually determine whether the virus is in the food. Uh, The methods and the techniques need quite a lot of improvement, also for parasites, uh, and that's part of the Center for Food Safety's mission. And it's an incredible mission, and I've had the privilege of attending y'all's meetings, and they're they're the, they're just fascinating to me to listen to where the the science has come from. For if, you, if there's an outbreak, let's say of salmonella in the Midwest, what we get to listen to at these meetings is how the the uh, scientific detective work can track it back to an individual yeah. piece of equipment in a mill somewhere. Yeah. That to me, it scares me every time they're in a good way, but. It's the most amazing group of people to listen to from all over the world and certainly all over the United States. Mm. That And then y'all are, y'all, my, my people, y'all are right there in the mix with them and just as respected, if not more so. So that's a great source of pride. Yeah, it's critical, of course, to determine the source, food source or water source that is really delivering the pathogen to the dinner table and thereby possibly causing cases of illness. The CDC, of course, is is on this every minute of the day, 24-7. There are many outbreaks um, or potentially considered as outbreaks that occur that the public uh, never hears about. Sure. Uh, Recently, we've had outbreaks associated with romaine lettuce. Um, There are many... uh, Foods that are we call recalled from the marketplace because of potentially containing a foodborne pathogen. Anyone interested in following that can go to the FDA web- website, fda.gov, look under food safety. It's updated daily, uh, and you can get some appreciation on the number of foods that are with- recalled from the marketplace to protect the public against the possibility of consuming a food or food product that contains a pathogen. Now, in Dr. David's laboratory, he's working very closely on methods to rapidly detect and link the isolated bacterium from the individual to a particular food quickly. 
And maybe he can comment. Yeah, David, let's talk about that. Because okay. as we're building yeah. up to really the topic we're going to talk about, this is all yeah. critical. What are some of the advances that have been made? And I know y'all's lab has yeah. been incredible at, at, at some, some recent advances to help us detect things faster. Yeah, okay. Um, so I've done a little bit of work on it, and we have a, a current student in our lab that's um, taken it a little bit farther on some other products, uh, um, different types of lettuce and Hopefully, even sprouts. Sprouts are kind of a tougher, <laughs> tougher thing to work with. I don't think I've ever seen one of y'all get sprouts at a salad. Yeah. Bar, so. <laughs> um, so the the method basically works on um, there's beads available that are coated that will attach to the bacteria. So basically, what we can do is shorten the amount of time for detection by adding these beads into our sample and concentrating it down so we have enough bacteria there to detect it. So that um, definitely shortens the turnaround time, which is very big for industry. They don't want a lot of their products sitting around somewhere before they know it's okay to release it. Sure. Um, so we can we can concentrate it down with these beads. We can also add a step in that's called MDA or multiple displacement genome amplification. Oof, I like the uh, MDA better. So basically it's just a general way to amplify the DNA is there. Um, and then we can do a PCR, which basically will tell us um, the quantity that's there. So it, it, it'll shorten it down from days to hours. And so when, and so I think this is really critical like, for people to understand, I think there's a thought process in the public perceptions, everything, that businesses are out there not wanting to know if there's a problem, they're just going to hide their heads in the sand. That is not true. Why do businesses, why do companies want to know, want you to identify the pathogen faster? Okay. <laughs> so I'm going to say <laughs> things that are my opinion here. Oh, uh, everything, Exactly. Well, one prime example, I mean, I think everybody's learned from the Peanut Corporation of America incident that happened here. Um, It's just not, these companies want to send out products. They they have brand loyalty. They they want consumers to know their product is a quality product, a safe product. Um, So I think that's number one. And we've definitely learned from that very, very large peanut butter outbreak and they've seen what can happen if you do maybe don't do what's necessarily correct sure and what i think (laughs) really is interesting about the meetings when i go to sit and again i'm scared to death in some of them but listening to them is that the sooner they the sooner you know the sooner you can pull off shelves or do what you need to do and it keeps less people from consuming whatever it might be when i first moved here i'd bought some flour at kroger is back in 2015 i get the recorded I'd never had this happen before. I get the recorded phone call from Kroger because, you know, I swiped my card when I bought it. And it said, you know, don't know if there's an emergency or not, but you are you bought a product. It was flour. It happened to be flour that's been recalled. Either discard, bring it back, whatever. Wow, that was pretty awesome. That, that, and it was really quickly, too. I had not used it. It was in my freezer. But I quickly pulled it out of the freezer and got rid of it. But So that, I thought that was great, too. So The ideal um, series of events uh, when an suspected outbreak has occurred uh, is for the CDC to be able to isolate from the patient the bacterium usually or virus or parasite that has caused the illness. Uh, 
and to also simultaneously isolate that same organism from the food that the patient had previously consumed. The work David is doing uh, allows a, from a genetic base, gene sequence base, to say eventually, well, that, that organism that was isolated from the patient is the very same strain, the very same organism that was isolated from the food. So that helps CDC and other epidemiological uh, researchers to confirm or many times to confirm or strongly suggest that that food caused the person to become ill. And the more rapid that occurs, the better, because then the company that produced the product can remove it. It can be recalled from the marketplace, thereby preventing, really, consumption and perhaps illness of other people down the line. Sure. And the great thing to me, the the interesting thing about about hanging out with you all and learning what I've learned, is it may have just been one single run of one product at one date. The the current product's not affected, but if they can isolate down to what – what was affected, they pull that, and everybody's happier, everybody's healthier for it. But Exactly. And these recalls uh, are very expensive for, sure. the, uh, for the supermarkets uh, and for those companies that are in charge of removing their products from the shelf. So it's an economic considera- consideration as well as a public health uh, uh, event and consideration. Sure, and we're going to go to break here in just a minute, but I want to ask you one question before we go. From 20 years ago or even 10 years ago to now, what's the the time that shrunk down from hearing about an outbreak like David's work to how long? And I know there's no there's no typical situation, but in a ballpark way, what's the time frame now? Has it shortened substantially? Uh, oh, absolutely, yes. Uh, for different uh, microorganisms, uh, uh, there are different lengths of time required to actually detect it in a food or beverage. But uh, even 10, 15 years ago, uh, what took, uh, say, three to four days, now takes a matter of a two or three hours. Wow. Okay. So, yeah, substantial increase in uh, uh, the uh, ability of laboratories to first uh, isolate the pathogen of interest from the food to uh, examine it genetically and uh, then to make or not make a link between the food and the outbreak itself. And and that's incredible. I mean, I know technology, every bit of technology changes everything Mm -hmm. for all of us, but I think sometimes people think about their computer getting smaller and their TVs getting smaller, or TVs are getting bigger again for whatever (laughs) reason, but but lighter weight. But they don't kind of think about all areas of science and things like food. That Mm -hmm. And for the typical person buying food in the grocery store, I know I have y'all t- with my have my back, so I don't worry a whole lot about it, knowing that there is advances like this. And so yeah. I think it's incredible that the time has shrunk that much. Often the the challenge is um, that there may be a very few of these uh, cells of these uh, microorganisms in the food sample. Okay, say one live cell in a hundred grams, which is about uh, four ounces. Okay. Uh, now, to tease out that one live cell is a real challenge, uh, but the, the methodologies that are being developed are being um, advanced uh, in our laboratory and others will allow that to be done in a very short time. Um, I, I was uh, 
at one time uh, told that uh, if you have, uh, say, water, and you may think it's contaminated with a bacterium, it requires, and you look at the water, it requires about a million E. coli cells per milliliter of that water to show up as any turbidity, that wow. is cloudiness. Okay. And uh, knowing that one cell out of that million can cause illness, um, and you drink more than one milliliter at the time oh, sure. of, of the consumption, then that uh, it's important to know if a single cell is viable, able to multiply in uh, a food sample of, say, four or five uh, ounces. Oh, absolutely. That's incredible. It speaks to the size of the haystack that y'all are looking for that needle in. But the incredible part, and that's where I get to take great pride when I brag about y'all all over the place, is that y'all do that. I mean, you find that one cell that's doing that in that, that, mm. that really small um, sample size that that's incredible to me that technology has brought us this morning. And you were doing it when the technology wasn't there, and you were still doing it. So, I mean, that's impressive to me, the amount of work that you've done through your career. Well, we'd like to think we contributed <laughs> to where we are today, but certainly uh, the advances in uh, in uh, methods to detect uh, these pathogens of food. Food safety in general uh, is much uh, on the minds of the consumer, and I, I really think that... Uh, Largely, we have a very good, safe food supply. The industry is wanting to protect their brand, as David mentioned, and they're working with uh, people like us at the center here in, in Griffin to help them in that whole process. Absolutely. What a great segue. We're going to go to our bottom of the hour break. When we come back, we're really going to talk about what we were going to talk about, and that's keeping food safe during the holidays. So, Tony, let's go to our bottom of the hour break, and we'll be right back. You're listening to the University of Georgia Griffin Campus News on AM 1450 WKEU in Griffin, Georgia. Also heard on 102.3 FM and 88.9 FM, The Rock, Georgia Public Radio at its finest. This morning's program continues after this. Frank and Carolyn Harris of Round Oak Resources Tree Farm and Murray and Company Realty. Proud supporters of the University of Georgia Griffin Campus and proud to bring you this week's edition of the University of Georgia Griffin Campus News. As the UGA Griffin Campus grows with the great educational opportunities for our children, Round Oak Resources Tree Farm is growing our future with trees to support and assist our environment. Frank and Carolyn Harris of Round Oak Resources Tree Farm and Murray and Company Realtors are proud supporters of the UGA Griffin Campus and area youth activities in Griffin and Spalding County. We now resume this morning's University of Georgia Griffin Campus News. Here is the Assistant Provost and Campus Director at the UGA Griffin Campus, Dr. Lou Honeycutt. 
Thanks, Tony. Welcome back, everybody. We've got a great show going today. We've got Dr. Larry Bouchard, who's a Distinguished Research Professor Emeritus in the Center for Food Safety on the UGA Griffin Campus, and David Mann, who's a Research Professional in the Center for Food Safety, of course, on the Griffin Campus. But guys, we've been talking about food science and background, or uh, the background of food science and the Center for Food Safety, and let's kind of segue now into the holidays coming up and how we can keep ourselves healthy. And I'm going to tell you, first off, my family didn't do it the right way because we used to have Thanksgiving and Christmas meal, the, the main meal. We called it dinner, but the main meal. And then we'd put the tablecloth over the table <laughs> for the rest of the afternoon and do the evening, and then everybody would come back and eat again. That is not the way to do it, I know. But, you know, I don't know how we survived, but we did. But so let's talk about those meal, the big meals coming up. we got certainly the Thanksgiving's past, but certainly the Christmas holidays or whatever holiday you may be celebrating um, there's going to be some big meals and some eating come up. What are some of the things that just kind of a general guidelines that people can start looking at even early? <laughs> well, uh, the tablecloth may have prevented the flies from landing sure, on the, that was on, kind of the, on the food. <laughs> Not that you would have had that problem in your home, <laughs> but it certainly won't uh, affect. In fact, uh, it may help uh, the um, the odd pathogen that might be on the surface of the food or even internally in the food during the time that you would have uh, left it uh, at room temperature. It is advised by some uh, regulatory agencies, uh, I think FDA and and USDA, that um, food uh, left on the countertop, uh, cooked food, uh, should not uh, remain there more than two hours before okay. putting it in a refrigerated environment. And when that is done, have the food in containers in which the cooling would be as rapid as as possible, not a huge volume of gravy, for example, in a <laughs> container because uh, it would take some time before the temperature of the internal portion of the, the the product would come to a temperature that would prevent the growth of microorganisms. Um, the types of food that are consumed by various uh, uh, people at Christmas time vary, but of course at Thanksgiving, some also at, at, at Christmas time, Hanukkah time, um, a turkey is a, sure. is a common uh, entree of food. And there are always questions, it seems, and good questions and reasonable questions about temperatures of turkey and and whether or not if you do put the the dressing or stuffing inside the turkey, should you do it the night before or should you wait until the day of before you do that? And what should the temperature of that turkey be during the roasting process in order to uh, largely prevent any microorganism to survive and possibly cause illness? For poultry in general, not just turkey, but chicken and and types of poultry, whole poultry pieces, it's recommended that the uh, internal temperature be at least 165 degrees Fahrenheit. For other types of meat, for example, uh, steaks and roasts, uh, the temperature that is recommended is a uh, temperature of... uh, 145, and for ground beef, say hamburgers, or even meatloaf, the temperature that is advised for internal uh, temperature is uh, is about 160. Uh, now, you may wonder why the difference. Um, well, first of all, poultry uh, in general, not always, 
but it, poultry is to be a known uh, carrier, if you will, of salmonella and sometimes campylobacter, um, and they uh, do not survive well at high temperatures. Okay. But the internal pieces, the internal portion of the poultry pieces do require uh, some time to re- reach the um, the killing temperature. Uh, in the case of, uh, say, steak versus hamburger, the microorganism that may cause illness or not is on the surface, most likely, of that steak. So the heat, uh, the temperature is reached very quickly at the surface. Sure. And so the internal temperature becomes less important in terms of inactivating, eliminating uh, any possibility of foodborne illness. In the case of ground beef, say the hamburger, um, the pathogen that may have been on the surface of the beef before grinding it now becomes part of the internal part of that hamburger. So that is why uh, the internal temperature needs to be higher for the ground beef versus the steak or the roast. Um, That's a great explanation. Another product that uh, is commonly or often consumed at uh, holiday time is at least Thanksgiving and sometimes probably uh, Christmas are custard or pumpkin pies. Oh, yeah. Um, (laughs) If you go to your retail grocer and you see pumpkin pies on display on tables without refrigeration, I suggest you inform the manager that that's probably the wrong thing to do. Okay. Um, The pie itself, the the ingredients, the pH, the amount of acid in that product is such that any contaminant, be it pathogenic or not, can grow rather quickly at cold room temperature. So they need to be refrigerated. Uh, In the case of berry pies, and and perhaps some fruit pies, apples, peach, so on. The pH, the acidity is fairly low. So the and the temperature that the product had been subjected to during baking would be such that uh, there would not be uh, much concern about uh, uh, a contaminant causing foodborne illness. So those those pies are fine if they're sitting out at room temperature, um, perhaps even in the home. But uh, uh, the custard, the pumpkin-type pies uh, are uh, to be treated with care in terms of temperature of storage. Sure. And among other things, you're making me hungry, by the way, just to, to let you know that. But you're talking about some of my favorite foods, unfortunately. But So let's talk now for both of y'all. How are some of the common ways that foods get contaminated? May, do, they, do they come that way? Do we cause it? I mean, what's some of the common things that happen to make foods maybe become not oh, not so great yeah that's a big question too <laughs> i'm just going to throw out there i think number one at least for me is the consumer washing your hands is i mean that's going to reduce a lot of problems just off the right off i, I the agree bat. i think I'm, I'm a big face toucher watcher yeah. kind of person and it, it mm. it's just one of my pet peeves and i've probably watched y'all this while we're sitting here yeah. but i watch the number of times people touch their face or and it just it's just something i do subconsciously it's amazing sometimes yeah. how many times people even touch their face or touch and then if they're in the kitchen working or whatever go right back to whatever they're doing 
That's yeah. a little scary to me. I don't. I mean, I don't know if we could even estimate what percent of food comes in contaminated sure. from the farm, or if you're if it gets contaminated during processing. Um, if you go out to a restaurant, you know, there's more people that come in contact with your food. That's another, I guess, risk if you want to call it that that you introduce. Uh, people do definitely forget though that even the home kitchen is that's another area that you have mm-hmm. to really think about if you're um, cross-contaminating you know definitely make sure you're not rinsing your poultry people that used to be a big thing i think people did for very very many years was they'd rinse their chicken before they cooked it sure and then nobody thinking that well we're any salmonella is on the outside of that we're just spreading it in the sink and all over the kitchen potentially and then it can get on your salad or whatever else you're preparing that day. So, Yeah, there have been uh, um, some recommendations over the years that, uh, for example, with the uh, uh, bagged um, lettuce and other sure. salad uh, products that have been washed two, three times at the processing plant be again washed at your home pre- preceding serving it. My feeling is that there is more chance of cross-contamination from contact with surfaces, including your hand, in the kitchen than there is a probability of any pathogen being on that product in the unopened uh, package. So um, I believe that the lettuce, uh, the salad greens, should be directly uh, placed in the bowl without uh, an intermittent wash. You mentioned uh, the contamination, uh, uh, perhaps the presence of foodborne pathogens on our bodies, our face. Staphylococcus likes to live in nasal passages. Okay. <laughs> and uh, those who uh, wipe their nose in, in various ways are actually then <laughs> I like the way you said that. <laughs> spreading that uh, pathogen, a potential pathogen, to their hands and subsequently perhaps to food. So David's comment on washing your hands thoroughly and often in the process of preparing foods is, is, is an excellent one. The um, uh, th- th- These microorganisms, occasionally pathogens included, uh, are, are not rare in the environment. Sure. Uh, microorganisms, bacteria particularly, in molds, we hear about mold counts and, and, and allergenic reactions, are are present in the environment. They are present, I won't say everywhere, but they certainly are present. And uh, they contaminate or can land on the food uh, from the air, or uh, uh, they are on surfaces and then contact of the food with that surfaces then transfers the pathogen to the food. And if it's not uh, preserved or prepared properly, uh, it may cause illness. It's surprising to some that... um, uh, fresh vegetables, fresh fruits, uh, the surface of some of these uh, uh, vegetable and, and fruit products, fresh ones, raw ones, are normally, I use the word contaminated, with microorganisms. They're naturally there. They're okay. in the environment. Okay. And there may be um, uh, certainly a hundred, maybe even a thousand cells of a bacterium per square centimeter of the surface of that product. Okay. That's fine if they aren't pathogens. And we consume these daily, no matter what 
what what the extent of washing of the fresh fruit or rubbing of the fresh fruit or vegetable is, they are still there in small quantities. But what we want to try to avoid is contact of that product, those fresh fruits and vegetables, with animal products that are more likely to contain a pathogen, raw uh, products that are likely to contain the odd salmonella or campylobacter or listeria. Sure. And then do you think, and this is strictly opinion for both y'all, but we live in such a readily prepared, you know, I want to take the least amount of time possible when I get home to prepare my whatever supper it's going to be. We're used to, that was a, that was an event. I mean, that, you know, my grandmother and my mother, too, spent hours planning, preparing, doing everything for a meal. Now, if I can't heat it up in a microwave in two or three minutes, I'm really kind of upset with myself at doing that. So what do you think that's had something to do with it? I think we've kind of all lost that in, in inane sense of what we should be doing in the kitchen versus what we maybe do now. Yeah. Made over the sink a lot. <laughs> in a, with a clean container, but, you know. Yeah. <laughs> do you think that has something to do with it? or? Well, it, it may be. I mean, uh, it's counterintuitive for me and others that have uh, worked in the profession of food safety for many years to say that perhaps uh, we are too clean. Uh, this has been debated, especially in the uh, area of allergens, young children not being exposed to uh, products that may eventually be allergenic at a young age, but yet uh, are uh, causing increased frequencies of allergens when people, children, uh, even adults become become older. Um, I have uh, heard uh, food safety professionals say that, uh, yeah, one reason uh, that some of us become ill when we uh, visit countries or even in this country, areas where food, uh, the hygiene is not as good as we would like it, we become ill, but yet the uh, people who live in that area and work in that area and consume the same foods don't become ill. They become perhaps immune to some extent where we are not. So the... uh, the argument that we are too clean, I'm not so sure, holds a lot of water. Okay. <laughs> uh, but uh, we, uh, but it is something that's being discussed, particularly within, in the area of allergens. Sure. According to my mom, I ate a lot of dirt when I was growing up, when I was yeah. a little bitty kid. And yeah. I, I, maybe that's why I'm as healthy yeah. as I think I am. <laughs> I'm not sure. There's a lot of stuff in dirt. Yeah, I wouldn't have something now. to do with it. Yes. <laughs> and it had something to do with growing up on a ranch, just like you on a dairy mm-hmm. farm and things like that. Okay, before we go to the, the last break of the day, let's talk fresh or frozen. So whether it's turkey or Brussels sprouts or whatever, is frozen safer than fresh in general? <laughs> I'm putting you all on the spot all day long. You're like, what? (laughs) If you're talking, uh, is the frozen product apt to be much freer of pathogens than the And I've had people say that to me before, and I've never believed it. Well, if you have a a raw product, and it's the type of product you can freeze, this doesn't include salad for sure, Sure. uh, leafy greens, but if you can freeze it and you have, say, 100 microorganism, any bacterium that might be present uh, per uh, sample, and you freeze that sample, certainly freezing will kill some of the bacteria, Okay, but not all. You will have reductions, and it depends on the bacterium. Uh, Thaw the product, that bacterium is still present. 
So you could say that freezing the product would lower the number of a particular pathogen that might be present, but it only takes one or two or ten cells to make you ill. So I'm not so sure that um, we can have a blanket statement that frozen products are always safer than fresh products. And there have been uh, recalls of frozen products from the marketplace. Sure because of the possible presence of pathogens. For example, listeria most recently from frozen vegetables. Now, if we cook those vegetables, which we probably would, but not always, those pathogens will become uh, dead. I mean, they won't be able to cause illness. And um, so there are uh, ways to reduce pathogens by freezing, but don't count on actually killing all the cells that are present and may eventually uh, cause you to become ill if the product is not heated properly after you thought. And I think that's kind of where I was going. As long as, as if, if it is frozen, but you prepare it correctly and, and follow directions and do everything right, you're probably probably relatively safe. I mean, safer than if you don't, for yeah. sure. Yes. I'm not going to eat a frozen Brussels sprout, I assure you, but yeah. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to cook them and cook them well. But um, I didn't like them growing up. I like them now grilled. But, I mean, and they come out of the freezer. But mm. it, I'm one that I'm, I agree with you. Just because it came out of the freezer doesn't mean it's, it's safe. It, if yeah. I handle it safely, don't prepare it, it should be. Yeah. Is that a exactly is that, yes? Okay, yeah. good. I have your word on that. Oh. So I'm, I'm, that's good enough for me. I tell you what, Tony. With that, let's go to our last break. We'll come back, do some final thoughts, and finish up and, and be done for the day. Announcements from the University of Griffin, Georgia campus is coming up next. You're listening to WKUAM and FM in Griffin, Georgia. <laughs> Frank and Carolyn Harris of Round Oak Resources Tree Farm and Murray and Company Realty. Proud supporters of the University of Georgia Griffin Campus and proud to bring you this week's edition of the University of Georgia Griffin Campus News. As the UGA Griffin Campus grows with the great educational opportunities for our children, Round Oak Resources Tree Farm is growing our future with trees to support and assist our environment. Frank and Carolyn Harris of Round Oak Resources Tree Farm and Murray and Company Realtors are proud supporters of the UGA Griffin Campus and area youth activities in Griffin and Spalding County. In announcements from the University of Georgia Griffin Campus, the Campus Store, which is located on the first floor of the Flint Building at 1109 Experiment Street, has new UGA and Georgia Bulldog items arriving weekly. The shelves are freshly stocked with officially licensed University of Georgia apparel, souvenirs, and gifts. Campus store hours are Monday through Friday from 10 a.m. until 2 p.m., and it offers you a great chance to come out and pick up some great holiday gifts. Young Scholar applications for the summer of 2019 are available online. The deadline for application is January 15th. The UGA Griffin Campus will be closed Christmas Eve and Christmas Day and will reopen on New Year's Eve, December 31st, but will be closed again on Tuesday, January 1st. For information on degrees offered at the UGA campus, you can visit their website, griffin.uga.edu, or call 770-412-4400. Undergraduate and graduate degrees are offered through five university colleges on the UGA Griffin campus. And Continuing Education offers classes throughout the coming year. For a complete listing, visit the website, www.griffin.uga.edu, or again, that number, 770 412 
4400. And this will be the final University of Georgia Griffin Campus News broadcast for the 2018 calendar year. The program will resume here on WKEU AM and FM as well as 88.9 FM The Rock on Thursday, January 3rd. Let's dot the I's and cross the T's on this morning's program. Here is Dr. Lou Honeycutt. Well, welcome back, everybody. We've been having a great deal of fun and, and, and a great educational process for me today, and I hope for you, too, talking with Dr. Larry Bouchard, who's a distinguished research professor emeritus in the Center for Food Safety, and David Mann, who's a research professional in the Center for Food Safety. And we've been talking about all things Center for Food Safety, all things how to kind of protect yourself for the 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 holiday coming up and we were talking about cookie dough david at the, at the break let's talk about you know because i there is nothing better than raw I, I say this facetiously now growing up there was nothing better than eating raw cookie dough as mom made it doing the yeah. cookies there's some inherent dangers in doing that am i correct uh yeah i mean they're they're <laughs> well that's the thing too i guess we need to mention is like no product is risk-free there you go uh, like was mentioned earlier organisms are everywhere so but yeah um eating raw cookie dough uncooked cake batter around the holidays you're so good it's probably not (laughs) recommended um i mean we have recalls from cookie dough ice cream we've had uh very recently cake mix recall um and i think people had the assumption previously that must be the eggs, must be the eggs, but I think we've definitely, even some of the work we've done has shown there's other dry products in there that can cause a lot of the risk. Sure, just like the flour recall my exactly. first year here. Yeah. It, it never occurred to me that, and you don't think about, because I make cornbread, that's why I was buying flour, cornbread from scratch. I, didn't, I wasn't thinking about it from that standpoint because I cooked the cornbread, but I always check it. Before I cook it in the pan, so yeah. I quit doing that after that. But so I mean, there's always there's always something, I guess. But um, so but cookie dough. I mean, that's uh, kids around the the here listening yeah. area are mad at y'all now because they're not going to be able to eat cookie dough this year. But but it's just to be safe. Better be yeah. safe than sorry. Uh, I assure you. Anybody that's ever had a foodborne illness, it is way better to be safe than sorry. Oh yes, because <laughs> they they are not fun. Well, let's do. We've got about five minutes here to kind of finish up. Let's talk about anything y'all want to about Center for Food Safety. If there's any new things on the horizon, um, or just you know, I, I I'm so glad that y'all were on today because I think it's so important for people to understand the critical nature and the importance of the Center for Food Safety and everything at the Griffin campus, but certainly from an international, national, local standpoint, y'all have a great impact. So what else, what do you want to talk about that we haven't talked about? I've been putting you on the spot all day, so I'm going to put you on the spot again. <laughs> well, I think to reiterate uh, the very high importance of handling food uh, in the home during preparation, after cooking, uh, before refrigeration, and uh, to to uh, to really serve as an example as a food preparer to the uh, children that may be present, the importance of safe handling activities in the, in the uh, in the kitchen. Uh, I think that will help, uh, of course, to educate the young the children, as well as to prevent or p- potentially prevent uh, foodborne illness at some point in their lives that follow. Um, 
there are uh, a number of uh, types of food that people um, in general uh, think are sterile. That is, they don't contain microorganisms of spoilage or pathogenic t- uh, potential. But uh, many of the um, dry foods um, and certainly raw products all contain microorganisms that are there from the environment. They most likely will not uh, pose a risk in, in terms of uh, making you ill, but it's the odd um, pathogen that might land there that we need to really have as the uh, center, of the target with regard to eliminating or killing during handling and also cooking and uh, to enjoy it without uh, the after effects of, uh, of uh, illness that may, they may cause. Sure. Mm-hmm. And the, I think that's a great point because I think one of the, the points you said was raw product. And if if you handle things correctly, if you do everything right and you cook the product, you're, you're relatively safe. I mean, is that a safe assumption? To that's a safe assumption, there? but we need also to depend on the uh, the growers sure. of these products. I mean, if uh, the grower uses so irrigation water that is contaminated with a uh, a pathogen, and that pathogen lands on the produce, and the produce makes its way from the field to your dinner table, then uh, may, maybe it will cause illness. So it is pre-harvest, the handling of uh, and the practices that are used on the farm, uh, animal as well as, as, as uh, plant-based foods that we need to bring into this full and complete picture with regard to reducing the risk of foodborne illness uh, in general. Good. Well, I can't yeah. say anything yeah. better than that. Yeah. That was very well said. David, any final thoughts on um, cookie dough or just final thoughts? Yeah, just um, just to throw this out there, um, there is an app. The USDA has a, an app called Food Keeper. Uh, okay. If people will go and download that app, it'll give you hints on proper temperatures to cook items to, um, even how to um, store items properly. So it's a good, it's a good quick way. If you're not sure you're in the kitchen, you can go to that app and. It oh, that's very cool. Food some, keeper, all yep. one word. USDA.gov. USDA. Okay, yep. that's awesome. No, I think that's fantastic. Well, listen, you guys have the privilege of being the last guest for 2018 because this is actually our last show of the year. We will pick back up on January 3rd with I don't know who, but we'll figure out who by that time. But but I want to wish you all both happy holidays and however you're celebrating them. And, and we all fortunately get a, a week of time where we can rest if we want to between Christmas and New Year's. So um, I wish you all safe travels if you're going somewhere. And just happy holidays, Tony, to you as well. And I guess that'll do it for us for today. And a Merry Christmas to you, Dr. Honeycutt, and to all the staff at the University of Georgia Griffin campus. We will resume our programming on Thursday, January 3rd, with more University of Georgia Griffin campus news.